0: Good morning. So today's reading is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, and that's on page 874 in the Black Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is God's word.
1: Morning, church. How's everybody this morning? Okay, feel free to interact with me. Um, That's totally fine. I'm very excited to be here this morning uh, to bring God's word to you. I'm excited because you guys must be the faithful of Grace Point. Uh, For those of you who went to bed before midnight like I did in preparation for church this morning, super excited for you. For those of you who actually stayed up beyond midnight and celebrated the New Year and then still came to church this morning, you guys rock. So thanks for coming this morning. It's really exciting to be here. Um, As Pastor Ryan said, uh, finishing up at seminary, and I'm looking forward to taking a position in the Anglican Church Uh, If you don't know much about the Anglican Church, um, we're an old church, Church of England, uh, but God is doing some incredibly new things uh, in the Anglican Church, and we're super excited. So if you meet an Anglican in New England, uh, be excited because we are working hard, just like you guys are, to bring the kingdom of God to New England, Um, and we're super excited about that. I want to give a personal plug before I get started. Uh, I noticed one of the announcements is Financial Peace University, and I can tell you from personal experience that it is an excellent, excellent, excellent opportunity for you if you have not been through it yet. Uh, My wife and I dedicated ourselves to going through Financial Peace University about eight years ago. We got out of debt, and I can tell you that I believe that I am in seminary today today And God has increased my capacity to minister because we are debt-free, because we have the freedom to move and to go where God has called us to go. He has opened doors that I never thought He would open before. So if you are struggling or you are in debt, I highly encourage you to go through Financial Peace University. You may not get moved from Texas up to New England like we did, But God will definitely move in your life and use you in ways that you have never thought you could be used because of that freedom that comes from being able to take what the world holds so dear and hold it loosely and give it up to the Lord and then let Him do incredible things with that. So that's a free plug for Financial Peace University. If you would, pray with me. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for today. We give you thanks for who you are Because you are a good, good God. Today we are going to learn more about who you are and your love and your character. And I pray that it would transform our hearts. I pray that we would see ourselves washed in the blood of your Son and completely loved and cleaned by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, you get an extra crown extra jewel in your crown. That's very cool. If you want to open up to Luke chapter 15, we're going to be focusing on really just verse 1 and 2. If you have an electronic Bible, feel free to just turn to that too. I won't feel like you guys are texting your friends or uh, Snapchatting or anything like that. Um, Chapter 15 is an incredible chapter because Luke tells... uh, Three parables in a row to really emphasize what Jesus is all about. The first one is about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then about a lost son. Three in a row. When there's three parables in a row, that's pretty important for us to pay attention to because Luke is trying to drive home an important point to us. And that's this. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that God is seeking you out and He wants to transform your life. A lost sheep. The shepherd left 99 behind in order to go out and find that one lost sheep. There was a lost coin. The lady cleaned her entire house to make sure she found that one coin. And there was a lost son and a father welcomed him home. The point of this is that God will seek you out no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter how lost you feel like you are. God is seeking you out and he wants to bring you home. The setting of all of this though is an incredible two verses that We oftentimes, I think, just skip right over uh, as we focus on these three parables. So I want to read verses one and two to you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Seems like a very benign two verses, not important. But it sets up for us the incredible truth of what these three parables have to say. First of all, let's begin to identify the characters. We have Pharisees and scribes. If you're not sure what a Pharisee or a scribe is, because this is an ancient Jewish term, the Pharisees were these self-righteous keepers of the law. These were the guys who had taken the law of God and upheld it so high that they were like, we have to live up to this. And in order to live up to this, they created a whole nother set of laws, what they called the Talmud. And the idea was that you would live by fierce instructions, by fierce Order, that your life would be so meticulously ordered by these rules that you would never break the law of God. But these rules were so burdensome to people that nobody felt the joy of the Lord anymore. It was things like you could only walk a certain distance on a Sabbath day. You had to wash a certain way if you wanted to be ceremonially clean. I mean, they were ridiculous rules. Things like not eating shellfish. I don't know about you, but New England lobsters, if that was still a law for us today, I'd be very sad being up at seminary here not being able to eat lobster. But these guys were making all of these rules, and the people were burdened by them. And then you have the scribes, which these guys are like lawyers. They are smart and influential and they would write down everything that was going on. And so these scribes and these Pharisees were like the moral police of the day. They were the guys who kind of set the tone for how people were supposed to live. And if you think about in our culture today, who's the moral majority? The kinds of people that yell at us and tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. That if we break a rule they shout out and tell us that we are terrible people. I don't know about you, but in this last year of politics, there's been a lot of yelling about how we're supposed to live our lives. There's been a lot of yelling about what it is that makes up a moral person. And I don't want to go into politics today, but I bet if I just asked you guys, who's the moral majority, who are the people in your world that kind of you don't have a relationship with, but you know that these are the kind of people that just yell at you all the time because you, you never quite are able to reach the standard of moral behavior that they expect. We see them on the radios, we, we hear them on the radios, we see them on the TV. I call them the talking heads of politics. These guys who just love to tell us how wrong we are and love to tell us how bad our lives are and that if we only did what they told us we needed to do, then we would be better people and we would be better off. These are the moral majority. These are the influences of the day. These are the guys who kind of set the tone for everybody else because they had the power and they used their power for their own benefit as opposed to the benefit of the people. Then we have tax collectors and sinners. When the Scriptures separate out people and give them a name like tax collectors and sinners, you know that these are a special kind of bad people. Uh, That's how they were seen by the Pharisees and the scribes, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were people who had basically uh, sold themselves to the ruling authority and had sold out their own people. So a tax collector would come along to you if you were a Jewish man and he would tell you, you owe the Roman government $100. But you only really owed the Roman government $50. But he would make sure that he got a little bit extra. So they were basically stealing from their own people and then pocketing that money and then giving the rest to the Roman authorities. And so these tax collectors were people who were making money off of the hard work of the everyday people. And again, it's not hard to think about in our culture who are the people who are making money off the hard work of ordinary people. People who are exploiting other people for their own benefits. And in that culture, the Pharisees and the scribes hated anybody who was a tax collector. And the sinners Sinners was a general term for people whose lives were so messed up that they were identified completely as sinners. Tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, people who were immoral sexually, Uh, people who um, were not even allowed to go to church. That's how bad they were. The Pharisees and the scribes would actually tell these tax collectors and sinners, you guys cannot come to church. You can't come to temple. You're not allowed in. You can't make the necessary sacrifices. They saw these people as being so bad that they weren't even allowed. They didn't even think that they could be redeemed. So on one hand, you've got these Pharisees and these scribes who thought that they were so good, pointing fingers at the tax collectors and sinners who were essentially grew up feeling like they were so bad, like there was nothing in their life that was worth redeeming. And then in the middle, you have Jesus. And in verse 1, it says, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Think about that for a second. The people in that day that were seen as outcasts, as sinners, as the worst of the worst, were being drawn to Jesus. What they saw in Jesus was so magnetic that they were actually being drawn to Him. They wanted to hang out with Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were so mad at Jesus that they said this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now I love this because the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew who Jesus was. Jesus had already performed some incredible miracles. They were very well aware of who Jesus was, that he was an established rabbi, that he spoke with authority that they had never imagined was possible. And yet they referred to him as this man, which makes me think that they were so angry, they couldn't even begin to tell you who he was. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've as a parent, I remember my parents doing this all the time because I have two other brothers and a sister, and when we would get into trouble, my parents would yell at us and they would go down the list, Brett, Gary, Craig, what's your name? And they would get so mad that they couldn't even remember who they were yelling at because of what we were doing. Or this past week I was uh celebrating Christmas and New Year with uh, with Anna's family in Pennsylvania, and uh I've got this really cute three-year-old uh, nephew, his name's Thaddeus, and he would get so mad at his sister, who's older than him, he just didn't have the words, and he would be, like, getting so angry, he was ready to throw something, and he would be like, d- 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 she-, she is being mean to me. Like, he couldn't even validate who she was. He was so angry that he didn't even want to speak her name Because he was so angry at her. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. These Pharisees and these scribes are so frustrated with Jesus that they don't even want to call him by his name. They don't even want to validate him as a person. They don't even want to acknowledge that he is a rabbi, that he is someone with authority. They're so mad at him. And so they call him this man. But we know who this man is. We've just celebrated him as Emmanuel. God with us. We sing songs about the government that will be upon his shoulders. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. We know him as Lord and Savior. We know him as teacher and rabbi. We know him as friend. His name is Jesus. He's the one that we, it's because of him that we are here today. And it's this man and what this man does that I want to talk about this morning. And there's two things that this man, this Jesus, did that is incredible. And I want you to to see this, that this man receives sinners and eats with them. And if you are okay with it, If you were like me and you write in your Bible, I would underline that verse. This man receives sinners and eats with them. What does it mean for Jesus to receive sinners? What does Luke say about these sinners? They drew near to him, so it tells us what they were doing, but that's all. It doesn't describe their sin. It doesn't tell us how bad they are. It doesn't tell us how these sinners feel. It doesn't tell us why they're coming to Jesus. The passage doesn't tell us anything about them other than they were drawn to Jesus and he received them. Sinners are received by this man. Sinners are received by Jesus. And if you go through the scriptures, you will see time and time again stories, parables, illustrations of sinners coming to Jesus. In Luke 5, we read about a leper who came and touched Jesus, and Jesus touched him. We read about Matthew, who is a tax collector, who Jesus says, come and follow me. In Luke 7... We read about a centurion, someone who wasn't even Jewish, needing their servant to be healed, and Jesus heals them. Further on in Luke 7, we read about a prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed them with oil. A sinner being received by Jesus. In Luke 8, we read about a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and was so desperate that she didn't even ask Jesus, she just touched his cloak and was healed. Jesus received her. Jairus' daughter, little children, the thief on the cross, everybody who came to Jesus, everybody who understood that they were sinners, who came to Jesus, he received them. And you look in the passage, it tells us three times. They were lost, and he went out and found them. And when he found a sinner, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a prodigal son, he received them. We don't know what their sin is, because their sin doesn't matter. We don't know how bad they were, because that doesn't matter. To Jesus, what matters is that we recognize that we are sinners and that we need Him. And when we recognize that we are sinners and we need Him, He receives us. That's the beauty of the gospel. He goes out and He meets people. And if they identify as a sinner, He receives them. Do you identify as a sinner today? you understand the need for a savior because if you recognize that there is sin in your life and you go to Jesus you allow him to come to you he will receive you because that's what it says this man receives sinners but Jesus doesn't just receive sinners he doesn't just invite people who are sinners to come in and remain sinners no Jesus does something that is incredible He transforms these sinners. He changes their life. But the way that Luke talks about it, which is really interesting, is that he eats with them. Now, why do you think Luke tells us that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them? There's something sacred about eating together. In Jewish culture, eating together was such an important act that you would never eat with a sinner. Because what eating did was validated the person for who they were. If you ate with someone, if you were invited to their house, what that person was saying by the invitation is that, I see you for who you are. I accept you just the way you are. And I'm going to invite you into my life so that we can do life together. That's what it means to eat with somebody in those days. In fact, it was more than just eating a meal because if you ate a meal together, the responsibility of the head of the household, the person who invited you, they were responsible for at the end of the meal to open up the scriptures and to share Torah with the people around the table. That's what made the meal so sacred. The tradition was that we would eat together and then we would open up scripture And we would share Scripture together. We would discuss what the Scriptures have to say. We would exalt the Lord through reading and studying the Scriptures together. So when you invite somebody into your house, and you invite somebody in for a meal, and you invite somebody in to discuss Scripture with you, you are seeing them as a whole person. You are seeing them the way Christ sees us. You are inviting them into your life. And so Jesus receives sinners, and he eats with them because he sees the sinner. But it's in the eating, the sharing of life, the sharing of Scripture, that these sinners are transformed. And they no longer identify themselves as sinners, but they identify themselves as friends of Jesus. That's what made the calling of the 12 disciples so incredible. These were people who had failed in life. These were people who were fishermen and tax collectors. People who had gone to school and had failed out. They had dropped out of school because if they were successful, they would have been students of a rabbi. They would have been rabbis themselves. But Jesus goes and collects these guys and he says, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how you've viewed yourself. What matters is that I see you the way that God made you and I'm inviting you into my life come and follow me I think that's what makes passages like the wedding at Cana so special or the feeding of the 5000 imagine 5000 people all of a sudden understanding that they are received and loved by Jesus and then he feeds 4000 again or the time that Jesus invites Zacchaeus into his house. That transformed Zacchaeus' life. Just through that invitation, just when Jesus looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner at your house tonight. And they ate a meal. Scripture doesn't tell us that anything profound was said. What was profound was that they ate a meal together. And it so transformed Zacchaeus' life that he committed to giving away his wealth. And going back to the people that he had robbed and giving them not just what he had robbed them, but giving them more. An encounter with Jesus, when you eat a meal with Jesus, he transforms you into something more than a sinner. He transforms you into family because you are now part of his family. That's what the invitation to a meal is all about. But there is a subtle rebuke in verse 7 that we need to have a look at. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 15, verse 7. It says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the next parable, the parable of the lost coin, in verse 10, it says, Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is giving those Pharisees a warning. And in so doing, He gives us a warning. And He says to us, It is not what you do. It is not your moral fortitude. It is not how good you are that matters. It's the fact that you recognize that you are a sinner. 99 righteous people are cool. That's what Jesus said. 99 righteous people, excited for them. But it's the one person who recognizes that they are a sinner that I'm interested in. Today we have this table. This is the Lord's table. This is the table for all who recognize that they are sinners. Come to Jesus. And so if you are someone here today who is a sinner, saved by grace, this table is for you. If you are someone who has never acknowledged that you are a sinner, that you have never acknowledged that there are things in your life that don't don't stand up to God's moral authority, if you recognize in yourself that you are a sinner and you've never had the opportunity to come and have a meal with Jesus and to be transformed by His grace, I want to invite you today too to come to this table because it's in the acknowledgement of being a sinner that you are welcome at this table. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. There is something else that's really cool about this passage that I want to close on because this is the part that I think is really important for us as believers. It's the context of this passage. We need to remember that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. But if you see where Luke has put this, you'll understand that to the disciples, to those who already acknowledge that they are followers of Jesus, that this isn't just for sinners, but that this is an example for us as well. Luke 14 is all about what it means to be a disciple. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible like I do, at verse 25, right before it, there's a heading. It says, the cost of discipleship. The understanding is that there is a way of being a disciple. Jesus is basically saying, we've heard the times where Jesus says, deny yourself, follow me, take up your cross, We've heard the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, teach them everything that I have taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always. In this particular passage, Jesus is saying that to follow me means you have to deny your own family. To follow me means that I have to be prioritized more than anybody else. But then he gives a warning to his disciples in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And So I want to end this morning by talking to the disciples of Jesus in the room today those who have identified as a sinner, those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus, those who have come to this table before acknowledging that Jesus is the Savior of their souls, that His death on the cross has taken away all their sins, and that you are now living as a disciple of Jesus. If that is you today, then this is the closing I want to give to you. Luke 15 then becomes a model for the way of discipleship, a model for how we are supposed to live our lives, a model for us that we are supposed to go out and find the lost sinners. We are supposed to leave the 99 righteous, that's us here today, and go out and find a lost sinner. We are supposed to find the lost coin. We are supposed to welcome the prodigal sons. And what are we supposed to do with them? Well, it starts by having a meal. It starts by inviting them to your table. It starts by redefining who they are based on you seeing them and accepting them and allowing the grace of God to transform them through your actions. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Every one of you, have a table in your home that you, by extension, can turn into this very table. Every one of us in our home have tables that we can invite sinners to come and sit around, that we can invite those who are lost, those who have left the faith like particle sons. We can invite them around our table. We can validate their lives. We can show them who Jesus is. We can love them the way Jesus loved them. We can see them for who they are and we can remind them of who God says they are. We, as disciples, need to model what Jesus is telling us in His Word. This man receives sinners and eats with them. I love the fact that Luke does not say, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Because it means that in a cute little nuance you can put your name in that scripture. Craig receives sinners and eats with them. John receives sinners and eats with them. Ryan receives sinners and eats with them. My encouragement to you today as 2017 starts out New England is by far the most unreached section of our country. There are more people in New England who don't know Jesus or like the particle sun who have walked away from Jesus than anywhere else in this country. You cannot leave your house and go to work or go to the store or in fact go anywhere without at least encountering a sinner. It's the nature of where we live. And I believe that if we open up our homes and we invite sinners into our lives and we show them the difference that God has made in our lives, that they too will be transformed. Not by our moral standards, but by His grace. Because they, through us, will see Jesus. And they will recognize that He is wanting to receive them. And through our actions of inviting people into our lives and around our table and eating with them will transform them so that they will recognize that even though they are sinners, they are saved by grace. That they don't have to define themselves as sinners, but they can define themselves as sons and daughters of the Most High God. As you come to this table today, remember two things. One, remember that you are a sinner saved by grace, that you need Jesus before anything else, that you need to sit with Jesus and be transformed by His grace. But then two, as an offering of grace, I would encourage you to come to this table with someone in mind, maybe someone that you go to school with, someone that you go to work with, maybe it's someone in your own family, someone have them in mind, and come to this table as an act of faith and say, this year, I am going to invite this person into my home, into my life, so that I can share Jesus with them, so that he can transform them by his grace. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let us receive sinners and eat with them. Amen.